but by your laughter, I think that you do. Uh, but what I found out was you had to prove that you had a real high intellect. So I moved on, and I, I got, became part of the church, and you know, there are just certain parts of the church that you're kind of attracted to. You know, and one of those things that I was really attracted to in the church was the worship band. And I always thought, man, I would like to be part of the worship band. You know, I was a pastor and everything, but, but I still wanted to be part of the worship band. But I realized there are certain things that you have to have in order to be part of the worship band. Number one, you have to have an instrument. So I went and I bought an instrument. I bought a guitar. And I thought, okay, now I can get in the worship band. But then I realized that there are some prerequisites to the guitar, too. You had to know how to play it. And, I, you know, I'm the kind of guy that thinks I can just learn, I can learn just anything by myself. Anybody like that? You know, you can just pick up stuff. You can just learn stuff. You know, YouTube is one of the greatest universities in the world. You know, you can learn everything on YouTube. Everything. I mean, if you want to know how to fix your plumbing, to fix your car, to fix anything, you can learn it on YouTube. So I went on there and I thought, I'll get some music lessons on YouTube. You know, and, and I you know, started to plunk away on my guitar. Uh, and then I realized, you know, there's another prerequisite to getting into this band thing, and it would be very helpful if I knew how to read music. <laughs> you know, and I thought, you know, this is getting to be really a burden, and nobody was really picking up on my talent. You know, no, <laughs> yeah, nobody said, you know what, you've got something going on there. You know, when you play that guitar, you, you know, you've got it going on. Nobody said that. And I thought, you know, I don't know, maybe I could sing. No, not really. You know, I, one of the things, there's a couple of elements to learning how to sing, too. You have to have good tonality. Okay, you have to have good tone. And uh, I learned that I was mostly just loud. I could sing loud, uh, and my tonality was not so great. Uh, I heard on TV the other day that 2% of uh, the, of the world's population is tone deaf. I just throw that out there. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and I'm counting up in the room here and I'm trying to figure out how many of you are tone deaf. But, but the reality was that, you know, that wasn't really, you know, I wasn't a good singer either. And so therefore, you know, getting into the band, I, you know, uh, the best I can do is sit over there. And so, you know, there's just certain prerequisites. Have you ever wondered what it takes to get into the kingdom of God? You know, are there some prerequisites to that? Or does just everybody get a shot at it? (laughs) Well, I don't know. We're going to take a look at it today because we come to Acts the 15th chapter as we march through the study of the book of Acts. And we're going to come to this thing in which the church is now replacing the synagogue. Okay, the New Testament church is replacing the synagogue, but there's a kind of a transition from the synagogue to the New Testament church. And in this transition, we have Peter, and Peter's done some great missionary work. Peter and Barnabas, or Paul and Barnabas, have done some great missionary work. And what has happened is the Gentiles now, you know, those non-Jewish people, non-Jewish populace, they have come to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the Jewish gentry of the church, they're thinking, they're scratching their heads and saying, how can this be? You know, what are we going to do now? Because what had they believed got you into the kingdom of God? Keeping the rules. Now, how many of you have a set of rules that you have for Christianity? Okay, got rules? Got rules, you know. (laughs) 
Bummer. You know, because, the, you know, the rules, I, there may be some standards of behavior and things like that, but rules to qualify are probably a lot like what the Jewish people regarded the law to be. The law was the, the thing that they used to measure whether they were good enough for God. Keeping the Christian rules, does that mean that you can be good enough for God? No. You can never in your own power be good enough for God. And we're going to discover that today. We're going to discover four things that Peter tells the church here will get you in. Okay, Everybody wants to be a member of the church, especially this church. <laughs> okay, that was kind of humorous, but not so funny for you. Okay, so, so let's, let's look at four things we find in the, in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts that will help us to get into the kingdom of God. You know, the church membership, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But the kingdom of God is something that everybody needs to be part of. Covered last week, what hangs in the balance? Eternity hangs in the balance. What we do here on this earth and what we do with God on this earth determines what happens to us for eternity. So let's take a look at number one. God knows your heart, doesn't he? Okay, that's the first thing that we learn here in the book of Acts, 15th chapter, is that God knows your heart. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> it could be good and it could be bad, huh? Because how, what, what do we know about our hearts? The Bible tells us that our hearts are deceitful and wicked. Who can know its ways? Now, I didn't include that one in your, passage, in your scripture passages, but you might want to just jot that down. The heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know its ways? I don't even, you know, sometimes I ask myself, why do I do certain things? Actually, what I really ask is, why do you guys do the things that you do? You know, why do they do that? And I kind of hit my head sometimes. And, and the reality is, I can't even explain why I do the things I do, much less expect to figure out why you do the things you do. So we have a hard time understanding our hearts, don't we? But I'm going to come back to this. You will generally do what you want to do correct? You know, in the end, we do things that we want to do. So how do we control that want factor? That's really the key to life, I think, and key to uh, entering the kingdom of God is, how do I control that want factor? And how do I make it kind of fit into what God wants? How can my wants coincide with what God wants. Well, let's take a look here. Acts 15, verses 7 and 8. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Now, there's some discussion going on about the viability of these Gentile people coming into the church. So Peter gets up after much discussion, and, and he says, Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Okay, now he says, he kind of sets the stage. You know that this thing was going to happen. You knew that Gentiles were going to be coming into the church. You knew that the Gentiles were going to be reached out to by the word of God. And you knew that they were going to respond. And so he says this in verse number eight. God, who knows the heart, showed that he had accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. Okay, now what was the qualifier there? How did they know that they were included in this kingdom of God mentality? It was the fact that they had received the Holy Spirit of God. Now, that's the key to getting in. Getting the Holy Spirit of God. Now, he says here, God who knows the heart. Now, I, I've talked to a lot of Christians, and, and they say, you know, when they mess up, you know, when we mess up, when I mess up, 
Okay? What is the thing that we default to, we fall back on? Well, God knows my heart. You know, he knew that I wanted to do good. He knew that I should have done good. He knew that uh, I have good in me. And he knew that, you know, and that's kind of what we imply. But the truth of the matter is, is that we basically have to come to a decision about ourselves. What are we? And I'm, I'm telling you, the Bible is good for a lot of things. It's good for two really good things. Number one, to show us who we are. Okay, the Bible shows us who we are. The Bible also shows us who God is. Okay, and then it helps to reconcile those two entities, who we are and who God is. So therefore, who is mankind? A lot of times people will go around and will say, you know, mankind is basically what? Good. Basically good. I mean, we do good stuff. You know, basically good. And we get that drilled into our heads and we start to really believe that, that we are basically good. But when I compare that to what the Bible says, what does the Bible say about mankind? Well, we wander. Okay, we're like sheep. We need a shepherd. We need somebody to lead us. We're basically sinful for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right. We've all sinned. And let's define once again what sin is. Sin is not just doing bad stuff, but sin is missing the mark. It's an archery term, as I've told you before. And the archery term is the idea of hitting a target in the bullseye. Okay. and so what is the target of life? What are we shooting for and what are we trying to be? Okay, well, you might define for yourself what you're trying to be. I'm trying to be successful in business. I'm trying to be successful in relationships. I'm trying to be successful in my personal relationships with my family. I'm trying to be successful as a whatever, uh, whatever career choice I've, I've chosen. I'm trying to be successful in that. And so, therefore, I decide what I want to be. But the goal is, if you read the Bible, is for us to emulate who Christ is. Okay, to emulate who Christ is. And anything that I do that doesn't emulate who Christ is, is missing the mark. Okay, the mark is Jesus. That's the goal. That's the target, is to be like Jesus. And anything that I do apart from that, that misses that, is what the Bible refers to as sin. Okay, so could it be sinful for me to do something that looks good to humankind, but misses the mark of being like Jesus? Okay. If I do something to help someone else, could that be sin? What if I'm helping them to be self-indulgent? What if I'm helping them to be selfish? Okay. What, if, what if I'm helping them to be uh, less than what God wants them to be? Is that sinful? Yeah, so, so there's some good things that we can do that really misses the mark of being like Jesus. Because what would, remember Jesus has this guy come to him, the rich young ruler he's referred to as. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus says, oh, you need to keep the commandments. The guy says, oh, I've kept that ever since I was a young kid. You know, I've done all of that. Been there, done that. You know, he might say, kind of like we do sometimes. And so therefore, he says, well, then sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he says, oh, no, no, that, now you're really stretching. Things. I can't do that. And he went away sorrowful. Now, could Jesus have bent the rules for that guy? Made him feel good? You know, and say, okay, well, you don't have to do that necessarily. You know, just have it in your heart to want to do it. He knew his heart. Uh Uh-huh. He knew his heart. And there was something that was more important than being like Jesus. 
And it was, as it gets exposed here in the story, his wealth, his personal wealth. He wanted that more than he wanted to be like Jesus. Because what would Jesus have done? He'd have given it to the poor, right? Because that's what he instructs the man to do. In fact, Jesus many times gets out on a hillside and he's teaching and the people are hungry. And what does he do? He takes some little kid's lunch. That's what he does. He takes some little kid's lunch and he multiplies it. Feeds everybody, including the little kid. Okay? Feeds everybody. I don't mean to make Jesus out to be a thief here. But, uh, but that's what he does. He takes the resources that are available to him, multiplies them, and meets the needs of other people. So therefore, that's what Jesus would do. Now, thing that falls short of that, the Bible refers to as sin. Okay? In James, James talks about sin as well. And he says, to know what is right to do, to know what is right, the good that you ought to do, and not doing it, is sin. Okay? I know that there's good I should do, and if I don't do good, then I miss the mark of being like Jesus. Okay? So it's not just doing bad stuff. It's maybe doing some good stuff that's not being like Jesus or not doing good stuff, being stuck in neutral. You know, a lot of times people, you know, and I used to live life this way when I was a little kid. I would say, you know, it's better to do nothing than sin. Well, doing nothing is sin, you know, because <laughs> I'm not doing the good I ought to do. I'm not doing the good. So doing nothing, you know, falling into this, this pattern of, oh, no, I, and, and here, we many times we want to do God's will, right? How many of you believe that God's will is this tightrope? And you have to walk the tightrope, and if you fall to the left or you fall to the right, you know, oh, no, I've messed up and I've lost it. Well, God's will is a journey, and it's a journey of submission to him. And so finding him, there's some latitude there. And God, you know, and I, t- I will encourage you to drive your car on the streets of life because God doesn't steer a parked car. He can only steer a car that's going down the road. So don't let your car be parked and do nothing. Do good. Okay. So now that's, that's what he talks about here in Acts 15. In fact, in 1 Samuel 16, uh, God has given Samuel this goal of going out to find the king of Israel. Now, we could do a whole sermon series on the, on the king of Israel. God didn't want him necessarily to have a king, but they wanted a king. And they said, you know, I want a king to lead us out into battle, to bring us home. We want to be like all the other nations of the world and blah, blah, blah. And God says, be careful what you ask for, because what you're going to get is something that's really not what you want. And they said, no, no, we want a king, we want a king. And so, okay, he says to Samuel, because go out and find the king. And so he goes out to Jesse. And Jesse has a bunch of sons. Now, we know one of them to be David. But he has older sons, taller sons, stronger sons. And here's what happens uh, in 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, now he comes up to the first son and he says, man, this guy looks like the one. This one looks like the one. Look at his appearance. I mean, and how much appearance plays into our lives? You know, we have to look good. You know, we have to look good, we have to act good, we have to behave good. Whether we're good on the inside or not, it doesn't matter. You know, just how we look. You know, and we play into that scenario. But here, here's what God says to Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. He's not the king. Okay, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. And he's saying, I'm looking for one here, and I'm going to find, the, I'm going to find this, this one, and it's going to be the right one, and I'm going to find him, and he's going to be one of internal strength, 
one of internal integrity, one who is something, not one who looks like something. When we vote, you know, and, you know, gosh, we, we should all vote. you know, <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> that's not where I was going, but, you know, we, we should. Uh, but, but what do we look at many times? We look at appearance, don't we? People appear presidential, they don't appear presidential, they do this, you know. And we, do, we don't look internally at the heart many times. And I'm not telling anything about anybody's heart in politics. Uh, because who can know the heart is deceitful and wicked. But the Lord says here, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Looks at the heart. Now, this, you know, and to each one of us, this might mean something different. What is it when God looks at your heart? What's he looking for? Looking for the good in you, but he doesn't find much good in us apart from him. Okay, let's be honest. He doesn't find much good in us apart from him. Okay, so what does he look for? He looks at what we desire. He looks at the, and and when you think of heart, think of desires of the heart. Okay, what does your heart desire is what he's looking at. Now, I don't know if you've ever done any introspection on this level, uh, but what does your heart desire? You know, a lot of times my heart desires a chocolate cake. You know, let's be honest. Sometimes my heart desires a good nap. Sometimes my heart desires a nice, warm, comfy environment to live in. Sometimes I want comfort. Sometimes I want whatever. Okay, but God looks at the heart, and what he's looking for is what do you love? What do you love? What does your heart really love? And so, therefore, we come to Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus says here, love the Lord your God. Now, he's asked, really, the question he's asked here is, what's the most important commandment? Okay, if there's one commandment in the world, and, and I want to know what it is so that I can keep it. If I can't keep any of the others, I want to know what the most important one is so that I can keep it. And here's what he says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What does he say is the most important commandment? Love God. Love God. That's the most important thing. So he looks at our hearts to see what we really love. Now, I don't know if, if you've ever questioned your love for God, you know, your love for Jesus, your love for spirituality, but I'm going to suggest that you do that. Find out what do you really love and how can you increase your love for God? I'm going to give you a tip here. In the New Testament, you know, Jesus says that those people who have been forgiven little, love little. Those who have been, and the opposite of that is true as well. Those who have been forgiven much, love how much? Much. So if you want to increase your love for God, find out how much you have been forgiven. You know, go back in your life and do a little analysis and say, okay, what has God forgiven me of? I remember when I was a kid and I did this, 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 and this. I remember when I was a young adult, I did this, 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 and this. And God forgave me of all those things. I remember last week when I did this, 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 and this. And God forgave me. God loves me. And when I am forgiven, it causes me to love him all the more. Have you ever been crossways with somebody? You know, you know you did them wrong. And, and you know that they know you did them wrong. And what do you do in those situations? You avoid them. Okay, you avoid them. And so therefore, you know, there's this estrangement that goes on when you know that that wrong has been done. And so you avoid them because you've done them wrong. And you avoid them maybe because you think they're going to point the finger at you and say, hey, you did me wrong. And you don't want that confrontation. So, okay, it's better to avoid. Let's stay away. 
There's people that don't go to church anymore because of that kind of stuff. Did you know that? It's amazing to me. You know, the place where you can come to receive forgiveness and be reunited with God is the place they avoid. So now when you do receive the, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, you know what? You did me wrong. They catch you, you know, in the grocery store. Uh, uh, and, and, and they come up to you and they say, hey, you did me wrong, but I want you to know, man, I have forgiven you. And I want you to know that I want us to get back together. What do you do? You just kind of go, the skeleton's out of the closet now. And I feel so much better. I feel like I, can, I don't have to avoid. I feel like I don't have to hide. I feel like I don't have to. A couple of weeks ago, well, really a couple, several months ago, I was at McDonald's. I'm with my granddaughter and my daughter. And, uh, and I'm over filling up my cup with soda. And this lady comes up behind me. And she says, excuse me, Pastor Mike. Man, who knows me? <laughs> you know, I'm at McDonald's. You know, I kinda, I'm wearing glasses and covered up and everything, you know, trying to be incognito. <laughs> not really, not really. But, but she comes up and says, Pastor Mike, I need you to forgive me for some stuff. And I said, really, what do I need to forgive you for? And she, she named some stuff, which I knew. And, uh, and I said, I want you to know you were forgiven a long time ago. You were forgiven a long time ago for that. And she goes, oh, thank you so much. I said, now, isn't it kind of a shame that you were forgiven years ago for that? But you st- I can tell you've still lived in the light of unforgiveness. Isn't that a shame? I said, we need to get together more often. You know, people need to connect with each other more often. And so, therefore, we need to have that thing that says, you know what? God knows my heart. He knows what's wrong with me already. And just to tell him, you know, is to agree with him. You know, it's not like he's asking for information from you. You know, he already knows. And so when we come to him and we receive that forgiveness from God, it's like the, ah, moment. Because God knows our hearts. Okay, number two. If you want to get into the kingdom of God, if you want to be part of the, the, the Christian faith, you can't do it by yourself. A lot of times we think that we can. You know, I can just be good enough. I can YouTube it and figure it out and be good enough. You know, I can be good enough. And a lot of times we think, God, you know, if you'll just take care of this for me, you know, if you'll just take care of this for me, I'll go to church the rest of my life. You know, we bargain with God. We try to be good enough for God. And we try to uh, achieve things for God. And thinking that if I can do that, I will merit his consideration of me. Well, notice in Acts chapter 15, verse 10, Peter again says, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Now, what is the yoke that he's talking about here? Anybody know? It starts with an L. Legalism. I was going to say it ends with ism. Okay, legalism. Legalism is what? The rules. The rules. So if you go to a church that has a lot of rules, question that. Question that. Because what's the goal for being connected with God? The goal is to have the Holy Spirit of God live in you. When the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, what does he do? He leads you. He guides you. He leads you into all truth. He gives you uh, the conviction of sin He gives you the conviction of righteousness and he does all of this stuff internally so that you don't have to have this external set of rules anymore. You have the leadership and the guidance of the Holy Spirit who causes you to walk 
in light of your faith. Okay, so nobody, I, I don't need to sit here and tell you what the rules are. If you have this internal compass, the Holy Spirit of God leading you, you can read the Word of God and say, oh, I shouldn't do that, I shouldn't do that, I shouldn't do that. You know, I should do this, I should do this, I should do this. And the sad truth is that more of Christianity is defined by what Christians should not do rather than what they should do. Have you ever thought about that? You know, how sad is that? Because we have things to do. One of those is to be a reflector of who God is. And so therefore, when I polish my mirror, I read the word of God and it says, hey, you know, maybe it'll tell me, you know, you been a little of this or you're a little of that and you need to straighten that up. I say, okay, I'll straighten that up. I'll shine up my mirror a little bit so I can be a better reflector of who God is so that people don't see that junk in my life, but they will be able to see the reflection of who God is. You can't do it by yourself. He says here, this yoke is legalism. And he says this about legalism. He says, we nor our ancestors have been able to bear that burden We couldn't keep the law ourselves. Why do we pass that on to somebody else? Why do we do that when we know that we can't do it ourselves? In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For it is by grace, and we're going to use this for a couple of points here. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. Now, what is it that's not from yourselves? Okay, salvation and faith. Faith, what is faith? Is faith something that you conjure up, that you just say, okay, I'm going I'm to grin it, I'm going to bear it, I'm going to believe it, I'm just going to make it happen. Is that faith? Faith is something that's given to you. Everybody, and we're going to discover this, everybody has a point in life in which God extends grace to them and gives them a dose of faith in order to believe. Everybody gets that opportunity. And what you do with that opportunity will determine whether it proves to be a life-giving thing, or if it, it condemns you to eternal death. What you do with that dose of faith that God gives you will be a great determiner. Okay, so he says this. It, and it's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Notice, not by works. There's nothing you can do to make yourself good enough to be perfect. Okay, and I believe there's two roads to heaven. Okay, two roads to heaven. Number one is by the grace of God and through the forgiveness of Jesus. Okay? And therefore, you gain heaven. The other is by living a perfect life. How have you done? How have you done? Not so good, huh? If you live a perfect life, you can gain heaven. Jesus did it. You could too. But the problem is, you can't live a perfect life. So that really relegates us just to one road to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. Okay, number three. Okay, so first of all, God knows our hearts. You can't do it by yourself. Number three, it takes faith through grace. Okay? Notice Acts 15, verses 9 and 11. It says this. He did not discriminate, speaking of God, he did not discriminate between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. He purified their hearts by what? Faith. Faith. No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So there's two words that are used here. Faith and grace, right? What is faith? Faith is belief. Okay, when you read the word believe in the Bible, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Okay, belief. What it means is have faith in. It means, believe means to trust in, to rely upon, 
and to commit yourself to it. We talked a little bit last week about the chair that you sit in today. You saw it and you looked at it. You had some faith in it, didn't you? Okay. You relied on it to hold you up. Sometimes they don't. You know, not none of these chairs, but sometimes chairs do. They fail. Okay. So you trusted it. You relied upon it. You committed yourself when you started letting gravity take its course, huh? And as gravity drug you down to that chair, you were counting on it to hold you up. That's what faith is all about. That's what belief in Jesus is. Trust in him, reliance upon him, and a commitment to him. So when we say here that faith is this thing that is not from yourself, God gives you the opportunity to trust in him, to rely upon him, and to commit yourself to him. Now, there's this thing also that talks about grace. Okay? Grace. And it says, through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Grace is this unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. God gave it to you. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. Have you ever thought about birthday gifts? You know, why do you get birthday gifts? (laughs) Yeah, sometimes I do. In fact, that way I ensure I get what I want. But uh, the truth is we get gifts not because we get older but because somebody loves us. They give us a gift because they love us. And that's what the grace of God is. It's a gift given to us, and it's this package of forgiveness and acceptance that is given to you that you didn't deserve, you didn't earn. Okay. Now, we go back to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you have been saved. This unmerited, gracious gift of God that you didn't deserve, you didn't earn, he gave it to you because he loves you, through faith. You trusted that gift You trusted that gift by trusting it, relying upon it, committing yourself to it. Committing yourself to the cause of Christ. Not by works, so that no one can boast. There's a last thing we want to talk about here, and that is, number four, everybody gets an opportunity. Everybody gets an opportunity to become part of the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 15, verses 12 through 18, it's kind of protracted here, but we'll boil it down. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Okay, So they're telling all this stuff about the Gentiles. Peter's saying, hey, yeah, uh, this has been predicted. And so therefore they come to verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Now, God had chosen the Jewish people, right, originally. Those were his chosen people. And he uses the same kind of verbiage to talk about the Gentiles now. James does. Okay, and he goes on in verse 15. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. Notice what was written in verse 16. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Now, what's David's fallen tent? Okay. It's the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. Okay. And when David died, his sons messed up and, and the kingdom got divided and all kinds of bad stuff happened uh, to the nation of Israel. They ended up being taken captive at the end of all of that time. And so he says, I'm coming to rebuild that fallen tent of, of David's kingdom. I will rebuild and I will restore it. So that, and we can insert those two words there at verse 17, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who who does these things, things known from long ago. He gives everybody a chance to come to know him. 
Now, Jesus talks in John chapter 6, verse 44, and he says this, no one can come to me, okay? No one can come to me for forgiveness. He says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me first draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. And a lot of times we think that, gosh, all I have to do is tell people about the love of Jesus, and they'll come, they'll fall at his knees, they'll do things. And, and I don't believe that. I believe that first, God needs to give you that little seed of faith. And when he gives you that seed of faith to trust him, rely upon him, and commit yourself to him, that's his drawing you to him. Now, does everybody get that draw? Well, here in John 12, 32, it says this. Jesus speaking again. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, when I'm resurrected, will draw all people to myself. Jesus will draw all people to himself. Every person will get an opportunity to have that little seed of faith deposited in their, in their soul. And how they respond to that seed of faith, how they respond to that little bit of faith that's given to them, how they nurture it, and what commitment they make to it will determine whether they get in or not. Whether they get into the kingdom of God. And so today, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me just for a moment. And I'm going to ask you to examine yourself and say, hey, am I in or am I out? Because the church is responsible to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world. And we want to be responsible with that today. So I'm going to ask you to examine yourself. Has there ever been a point in time where you felt drawn to God? Where you said, you know what? He's given me this element of trust. He wants me to trust him. He wants me to rely upon him. He wants me to commit myself to him. Maybe today's that day. Maybe today's the day to say, I yield myself to you, Lord. I yield myself to you. I give myself to you. I want you to lead me for the rest of my life. And I'm going to do everything I can to get to know you. And so therefore, today marks that day. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And maybe you want to just repeat this simple prayer. Father, we come to you this morning trusting you. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us. And we now confess to you that we have tried to live life our own way. And it's time for us to repent of that and to trust you. So, Lord, we make a volitional choice today to leave our selfishness behind, to leave our own goals behind, to leave our own desires behind. And, Lord, we want our hearts to change. We want our desires to change. We want them to be aligned with you. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and live in us so that we can have that change of heart that will change how we feel, that will change what we do. So Lord, today we submit ourselves to you and ask you to forgive our sin and give us guidance for the rest of our lives through the Holy Spirit of God. We trust you. We rely upon you. We commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.